My name is Kathy Harrelson, and I'm excited to be here with you tonight. Welcome to Summer Women in the Word. We are doing a great series called Eavesdropping on Conversations with God, and we are excited that you could be here with us tonight. Um, When we, as a group of teachers, met with Deb, who um, describes and kind of puts together the series that we do in Women in the Word, and she began to explain her hope for this series, um, she explained, she said, I don't really necessarily want you to teach the prayer or teach Psalm 51. She said, I really want you to look at the conversation that goes on between God and, and, in my case, David in this prayer, and I want you to watch their interactions. I want you to see how God initiates and how David responds and how maybe we can all be drawn into prayer and into that conversation with the Lord. And as she shared that, I had a flashback to when I was in my early to mid-twenties, and this was something I really wanted to know, because prayer for me was kind of this elusive thing. How does God initiate and I respond? And I found it really hard to observe and learn that from other Christians around me, because it's just hard to observe someone praying. Like, I can watch you serve, or watch you teach, or maybe you can teach me how you study the Bible, but to jump inside your head and kind of watch this experience go on, I really wanted to know, because I wanted to have those conversations, but it was really hard for me, and I remembered um, a lady, her name's Jeannie, I called her Miss Jeannie, she was about 40 years older than me, and I remember a couple of young women and I going to her house, but I didn't really care that anybody was there with me. She was going to talk to us, and she did, about how she interacted with and prayed. And I was so glued in because I found this to be such a hard thing, but such a valuable thing that I wanted to have. And I I actually told Deb, I said, I really think it's way harder to teach this than if you would just told me to teach Psalm 51. And I probably dozens of times read back to the sheet of what we're supposed to cover because I find this so difficult but so incredibly valuable. We are going to look at this interaction between God and David, and the goal, as Deb has for us, is that hopefully you can learn something about how God initiates with and can draw you into prayer. We're not saying that this prayer is exactly how you're supposed to pray or that every confession prayer is supposed to look like this or even that we can fully understand everything that went on between God and David. But we want you to be drawn into your own conversation with the Lord in perhaps a more deep and fruitful way. And we are going to do that through Psalm 51. So open up your Bibles to that, and I want to read the first six verses, and then I want to talk about kind of how we're going to try to look at and learn from um, David and God's interaction that might have a valuable, significant influence on us. I'll read for us verses 1 through 6. David is praying, and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
As I began to think about looking at conversations and learning about a conversation, I, in my own mind, thought, you know, there's really three things that would be helpful for me to know as I watch someone's conversation and interaction. First, I want to know the people that are in the conversation. The people that are having the conversation and the things that you know about those people influence the conversation. Also, the topic of the conversation really matters. And thirdly, I think there are keys to conversation that kind of indicate whether a real conversation has actually happened. Um, like you can be two people and sharing words, but if one person speaks French and another German, no real communication and conversation is going to happen, right? If someone speaks too loudly or in a way you don't understand. So I wanted to look at this psalm and say, are there any keys that really helped make this conversation happen? So we are going to look at those three things tonight. And you'll note that in each category, I've written something called my personal takeaway. And that is because of Deb's encouragement that this be something that is personally God initiating a prayer and a conversation with you. So when we get to that part, or even as we go on, if something strikes you or jumps out to you because that's been Deb's heart in prayer, I'd love for you to just jot down what it is that you personally might be able to take away that would really encourage you in your conversations with the Lord. So the first thing we're going to look at specifically um, tonight is the people in this conversation, and there are two people in this conversation. There's God and there's David. And I want us to look at each of them at two key characteristics about them that I think really influence this conversation. The first we're going to look at is God, and I want you to look specifically at the second half of verse 4, because David speaks about God and he says that God may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God is a blameless, just judge. And David knows this. David knows that through all eternity and up until this point, that God is holy, God is just, and what God says is right. And that is the person that has initiated and engaged this conversation with him, that has come to him. And I feel like this is significant for us to remember. And maybe to you, if you've been in the church a while, you kind of think, yeah, yeah, I know that. And if not, that's totally fine too, because in our worldview, when we think about interacting with God or with a spiritual being, this idea that that God is holy and right and is the one that gets to define what is holy and right and define the conversation is not necessarily a worldview that's really common. We kind of have this idea that, well, I'm going to talk to God and kind of share my heart and see how whatever, and we don't always approach prayer with this idea that we are speaking to someone that is holy and just and right. Now, his ways are good and freeing and awesome, and we're going to get into that. But as this conversation starts, we see that the person that's initiating is just and holy and right. Now, how does David view himself, and what does God know about David as well? We see that, um, again, look back in verses 1 through 3 and see what David says about himself. He talks about in verse 1, his transgressions, verse 2, his iniquity and his sin, verse 3, his transgressions and his sin, and it keeps going throughout the psalm. David is very clear with us that he is a sinner and that he knows that. We don't see any excuses. We don't see, well, I was tired, or we don't see any blaming of God for God should or shouldn't have done, or the way I was raised, or whatever. I mean, David owns it. I'm a sinner. And this is a guy who is the king of Israel 
and, and if you're not familiar with David, he's one of the good guys. He's one of the guys that has walked with the Lord, has trusted God, has talked about the Lord. This is not, we see in scripture kind of, sometimes you think about the good or the evil kings and judges, like this is a good one. And he admits very clearly there's a part of him still after all of that that is a sinner. Flip back with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I hope you had maybe time to look at it in your small group time. But I think it's really important that we talk through this because of Deb's desire that we look at how this conversation was initiated. What was going on when and how God came to David. And I want us to look at this story because um, it's long, but it's so important. We see David starting off um, that he notices a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. Bathsheba is married to Uriah the Hittite, but nonetheless, David invites her over. They have a sexual relationship, and she sends a message to him in verse 5 that says, I am pregnant. And we see David take a bad situation and kind of turn it worse. He decides, well, how can I can I cover up and fix this? And so he calls Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's wife, who's been fighting for the nation um, of Israel. And he says, hey, come on back. Tell me how the war's going. Oh, go home and enjoy some time with your wife, thinking they'll go have a relationship. They'll have sex. Everyone will think the baby's his. Win, win, no problem, right? The problem is that Uriah is noble and does not do that. Instead, stays and waits. Um, where David is in light of the fact that his um, friends and brothers are out fighting. And so David says, well, I'll get him drunk. Then maybe he'll go home. That doesn't work. So when that doesn't work, he says, well, how else am I going to get out of this situation? So he sends Uriah back with a note back into battle to the commander and says, hey, put Uriah on the front, hoping that Uriah will get killed. Well, According to David's plan, um, that indeed happens. And so we see that um, after that happens, David marries Bathsheba. They have the baby. He thinks, great, problem solved. No one knows. Cover up complete. But we see in verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so this secret thing could not remain secret. So God sends a prophet named Nathan. He goes before David. He tells David a story about a rich man and a poor man and how the rich man had taken the poor man's um, one lone precious lamb. And David is incensed. David knows right and wrong. David knows God's laws. And he says, this is not okay. He calls for a strict judgment. In fact, he says in verse 5 of 2 Samuel 12 that this man deserves to die. God, through Nathan, then brings the truth um, in holiness and in justice, but as we're going to see, also in grace and mercy. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. This is you. And David responds in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. God is the one that brings this up and initiates with David and points out what is going on. We then see David's response to this. We see not only that God is holy and just and that David is a sinner, but we see that David turns to God and he seeks help. To our knowledge, um, he did not um, order a self-help book on Amazon. (laughs) He did not look within himself 
to muster up whatever this is, he absolutely turns to God and says, I need your help. It's all over the psalm. We see that he says, um, have mercy on me, O God. Wash me, cleanse me, create in me. David turns to God and he absolutely seeks help. And I love that we see this very honest conversation going on. They both, first of all, God knows all these things. Sometimes we think like we can kind of pretend God doesn't know. He knows. All right. He knows he's holy. He, he knows David's a sinner. This is not a newsflash. But David is coming into some sort of realization of what he already knew. But they're having this very honest conversation. God knows who God is and God knows who David is. David knows who David is and David knows who God is. They're, they're having this honest conversation with each other. And then we get to what I believe to be the most important point in the psalm. And if I only had one point, this would be it. And that is what we see David cry out in verse 1. How does he start? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. God is a merciful, gracious, loving God. I mean, can you imagine, David? You are the king. You are the chosen king that God has put in charge of his people. You have known God. You have walked with God. You have made good choices in the past. And here you find yourself blown it, blown it, blown it. And yet you know that even in light of how bad you've blown it, how gracious and merciful is loving is this God that you know, that you go back and ask for mercy. You ask for cleansing, though you don't deserve it, and you have really blown it what he must have seen and known about the depth of the gracious, merciful, loving God who had cared enough to send Nathan to initiate this conversation with him so that which had been done in secret and was impacting their fellowship and making David miserable, whether he knew it or not, could be forgiven and whole and healed and cleansed. As I thought about this, I I knew there was no way I just gave up even trying though I kind of wrestled with that how in the world do you communicate to a group of people the depth of the grace and mercy of God like it's just not even possible um so this is my lone attempt to explain it which will fall short I just want to assure you I um when I study things I do sit down and study them but I also am a thinker meditator and because this psalm was too long and I didn't have time too much else going on I couldn't memorize it so I wrote it on a piece of paper well I did not write it I cut and pasted it on a piece of paper and it was in my purse so this is the piece of paper that was carried around with me in my purse for several weeks so that as I thought about this psalm I could I could go back to it and look at it and was just constantly overwhelmed by the the grace and mercy of God I mean just all over this all over it. And so I, over Memorial Day, my family lives on the East Coast, so my parents flew. Um, we flew up to go to the North Room of the Grand Canyon. We'd never been to the Grand Canyon. Um, of course, you've heard all about the Grand Canyon, its majesty, its power, how great it is. And we're excited. We're from the East Coast. We don't really have canyons, so you don't see these things. And so you don't. So we're headed to the Grand Canyon. And I'm so excited because I love doing stuff like this. So you have to 
plane and drive and whatever. And so we finally get there. My mom always loves to go to the visitor center. And I, init- I had intentionally not done a lot of research or looked at pictures because I wanted to go and see the Grand Canyon without having a lot of pictures in my mind. I mean, and as I studied and read while we were there, I was way more amazed with it because I-, I wanted a first impression. And so I'm like, Mom, can we please, like, we'll go to the visitor center, I promise. Can, can we just go look at it first before we go to the visitor center? So we have this consent. So we finally stop after the plane, drive, whatever. And I'm kind of like a three-year-old. I'm so excited, like kind of skip running, hopping to the Grand Canyon. I mean, like, seriously, it's kind of embarrassing. But I'm literally doing this because I'm so excited to see this. So I get there. I mean, it's the Grand Canyon of all things. I mean, it's powerful. It's majesty. It's all these things that you think it is. And I promise you that as I'm there with my purse, which I don't know why I carried my purse out of the car, but I did with this piece of paper in it, I'd been staring at the Grand Canyon less than 60 seconds when all I could think of was, this is so nothing compared to the grace and mercy of God. To me, it felt like an anthill. And I'm at the Grand Canyon, and I want to pull out my white crumbly sheet of paper and read about the grace and mercy of God. It's so significant for me, and I think for all of us, to know that it's a gracious, merciful God that has come to us and is drawing us into this confession. Because without that, I think just like David knew, he would be annihilated without it. And I think I know that when I go. That if I'm not going to a gracious and merciful God, I don't deserve any of that that I'm getting. I don't deserve the forgiveness. And I'm kind of not going to be able to or choose to be real or honest unless I really grasp the grace and mercy that's there. And then as I do, what happens, I'm able to see my sinfulness more, which then again drives me back to even more of the grace and mercy of God. So my personal takeaway that I wrote down, and you can write down your own, but this is literally what is written on my paper, smile, dot, 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 he really is that gracious, and even more than you know. This gracious, merciful, holy God stepped into David's life and said, we got to talk. And David says, okay. So what do they talk about? What is the topic of this conversation that we need to see this interaction that goes on between them? Um, And I've divided it, again, into three things that I think we can see. And that is this. First of all, God and David converse about the real problem. Look with me at verse 4. David clearly defines what the real problem is. Speaking to God, God has initiated and given him this insight. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The real problem is David's sinfulness. And not just David's sinfulness, but that David has sinned against this holy and gracious God. And that's a pretty bold statement right there. I'm not saying he didn't sin against Uriah and some other people But the most important thing that has happened, the most significant thing that's happened, because sometimes we get sidetracked, and I'm not saying we don't sin against people, and of course we go back and ask for forgiveness. And But sometimes, in fact, Deb and I were talking about this, we can get so caught up in what we've messed up and trying to fix it and trying to make it right with the people that we forget the fact that the real problem is that the holy and gracious God and that we've sinned against him. And David and God get to the real problem because that is the most important problem in this psalm and really in our lives. 
And one day, again, with my trusty little sheet, because I try really hard, not totally not perfect, to at least try to live out and apply to my own life what I'm teaching and not just say that you all need to. So I, one day I decided I'm going to meditate on this verse 4 because as I studied and a lot of the people that I read about it talked about how significant this verse is. So one day I was walking from my house to my friend Chris's house. She was um, out of town for a few weeks, so I was checking on her house. And she's not right next door, but we can totally, I mean, I can walk to her house. It's not a big deal. I was going to check on it. And I said, you know, I'm just going to meditate on verse 4 the whole way there. So I thought, I'm just going to pick, there's lots to choose from, from my sins today, to meditate on as I walked down to Chris's house. And the first one that came to mind was something that, honestly, I don't remember the details, but I remember it involved my motives behind something I'd said. And nobody would have known but me. What I said was fine. I didn't need to apologize to anyone. But I knew why I'd said it, and I knew my heart wasn't in the right place, and it wasn't a good thing. And I thought, I'm going to think about this. I've already told you I've been overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God. So I'm starting to think about my motives and how selfish, and it was just silly. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just silly. I began to think about how gracious God is to me, and I could not believe that I had looked at that grace and totally ignored it and instead turned to my own selfishness. It was something seemingly so simple, literally by a third of the way of me getting to Chris's house. I was nauseated. Don't you hate to hurt and grieve the people that you love the most and are the kindest to you and are the most gracious? And I was physically nauseated and had to stop thinking about it before I got to Chris's house because I was so bothered at how I had done that against this gracious God. And thankfully, I had read the rest of the psalm and knew what was coming. And though I had a real problem and needed some help, I knew where to go. Because David and God talk about what the only hope to this problem is. Let's read about it in Psalm 51, verses 7 through 12. And we're going to see what David learns. And that is, or what David recites, what God initiates and reminds David of, is that God's mercy, love, and forgiveness are the only solution for David's sin. Watch the truths that... um, God brings to David's mind and that David prays back. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What is David's only hope? This merciful, gracious God. That's his only hope. And and frankly, really, we should today kind of know that even better than David because David didn't know the specific name of Jesus. He didn't know the story that was coming that was going to be revealed. And we who live after Jesus lived are able to see this played out so clearly. We're able to see that this holy God realized all these people were hopeless without him. And he initiates and sends down his only son to live this perfect life that none of us could live. And, and they'd been trying for years to, to do it or to find a way out. And there, were, there was no other way out. 
So Jesus comes and takes the punishment that David and you and I should have gotten, and he puts it on his son. Jesus dies on the cross and is raised again so that a holy God can also offer grace. This is the picture right here that we see. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus laid out for us. It's the only hope for any of us to deal with the fact that whether we want to admit it or not, there's a holy, gracious God, we're a sinner, and we are looking for an out. And the only hope we have is the grace and mercy of God. Continuing on, I love the first, ver- the first word of verse 13. I think it's really significant. Then you see the word then. And I think it's really interesting that in this conversation that David and God have, God initiates and draws David through the admitting of what's going on, the only hope. But then we have the then. What does David envision? What does God give um, David a picture of? What is the then that's coming after all of this? Look with me and let's see God and David as they move this conversation and kind of end with their eyes on a future hope. I'm going to read through this and point out a few things. Um, David says, after... Hopefully, in verse 12, God, which we know he does, restores to David the joy of his salvation, sustains him with a, with a willing spirit. What's, what happens next? What's the then? David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. So teaching is a part of this. Teaching other sinners God's ways. Well, God has a lot of ways, but what ways has David most specifically been learning and talking about it? What is it that David has to tell sinners? guess what? I'm one too. Guess what the only hope is? The grace and mercy of God. These are the ways David most clearly knows. This is David's thinking and plan and prayer for what it's going to look like afterwards to tell other people about the grace and mercy of God that he's received and how that's the only hope. What else does he say? Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Why and what happens after that? And sinners will return to you. This idea of repentance comes in. It's not just that David confesses that he's wrong and he experiences forgiveness. We see in the rest of his life after this, by no means is David perfect, but David makes a change. He doesn't just ask for forgiveness and continue on in what he was doing. He makes a change and he comes back and he returns to this fellowship with the Lord. Not again that he's never going to sin. So what is David's hope that is going to happen with the people that he tells about God's ways and God's mercy? What does he want to happen? That those sinners as well, what is his prayer? That those sinners will repent and they will return and they will see God again and experience that again. What's the next then that we see? And this one was one that, not that it surprised me, it just so jumped out at me as I was studying this. I want you to see how David has this plan for praise. He has this expectation that praise of God is what is coming. Watch this, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart of God you will not describe. David envisions part of what life is going to look like after he's experienced this grace and forgiveness and healing is the praise of the holy and gracious God 
that so gave it to him, though he didn't deserve it. That's what David prays and envisions happening in the future. God also draws David into pray um, for God's work um, in the life of the nation of Israel. In verses 18 and 19, he says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and in whole grain offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David is asking for God's goodness to this nation that he is a part of, asking for God's grace and mercy to be with them again. I want to point out real quick something that's that's not in here and kind of maybe tweak some language that I hope may give us some understanding. Um, notice David does not talk in here about um, forgiving himself. Um, sometimes that's a concept that we hear, and, and I really think a better way to explain it that can help us grasp it is... Um, it's not so much that we forgive ourselves. That's not really the concept. The concept is that we believe that indeed God is gracious and holy. He has forgiven us. He has set us free. And though we don't deserve it, we can move forward with that confidence and that freedom. Do you see the difference? And that we don't see David kind of wrestling with, but I have to forgive myself and there's this guilt or whatever. And I'm not saying maybe maybe that was a, a part of his struggle, the guilt, I don't know. But what I want you to see is not so much a need to forgive yourself, but a need to say, hey, I actually believe that this God who said he was going to forgive me and sent Jesus to die on the cross so that he would forgive me really has forgiven me. And if I'm still carrying this guilt and condemnation, it's because maybe I don't really believe or haven't fully grasped the grace and forgiveness that he's actually given me. Does that make sense? Hard concept, but I'd love for you maybe to think about that a little bit if, if you might find yourself stuck there. I think if you can go back to the character of God and kind of how forgiveness works, that might be helpful for you. So you write down your personal takeaway for you. What is God initiating and bringing to your mind that might be a part of your prayer life? Mine clearly was verse 4, uh, among other things, but that was mine. As we move into this last section, I explained that I wanted us to look kind of at maybe what some keys were to the conversation so that we don't unintentionally miss them. The first one is one that I've actually been saying this whole time and we saw in Second Samuel. God is the one who initiates. God's the one that starts this. In his grace and love and mercy, he comes to David and says, we need to chat. God initiates this. Two things that I want us to think about, or at least just kind of encourage you in. Well, how does God initiate prayer with us today? Uh, we could probably answer a lot of ways. But I want you to know that one of the best ways for us to enter into these confessions conversations is by reading the scriptures. Because that's where we see what the standard is that we haven't met and God can show us. That's where we see how gracious and merciful and kind and good and what his plans are and why we'd want to be drawn into that. So I just think that if you think, well, God doesn't really initiate with me about confession, then maybe I just might want to encourage you to every day this week, pull out your Bible, read a psalm, and ask God, hey, God, where are some ways that, um, that maybe I'm not quite on target and could honor you more and have some more freedom and um, see if God initiates those conversations with you? I also, especially because I know Deb's been praying, and, and I'm, I'm not the Holy Spirit, nor a prophet, 
But because Deb has been praying that God would initiate conversations with people through this series, I kind of just want to assume that if you're here tonight and God's brought something to mind if we've been studying the scriptures, I'd just like to suggest he's probably initiating with you. <laughs> so if something's come to mind or you've written something down and you're my personal takeaway, just go with the fact that that's God wanting to talk to you about something. And let's just assume he's initiating, okay? All right. So how does David respond to this initiation? And I think it's so interesting because as we head back to 2 Samuel, or as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, Nathan walks in, tells this story, calls out the king of the nation for his deceit and sin. And I think, goodness, couldn't David have kind of turned around and said, liar, guards go take his head off? I mean, did he have to respond with, I have sinned against the Lord? I don't know, but he did. And in verse 12, we see clearly, or actually verse 17 rather, sorry. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. And if I'm honest, sometimes God points out those things to me. My heart is broken like on my walk to Chris's house. And some days my heart is just not broken. I'm irritated. I'm annoyed. I got my excuses. I don't want to talk about it. Like whatever it is. And and just two things that are helpful for me, if they're helpful for you, great. One is, what do we see in this psalm? David just goes to God and asks for what he needs. So if God brings something to mind, and in your heart of hearts, you know you really don't care, but you should, then ask him to help you care. (laughs) I mean, David is all over this. Cleanse me. Create in me a new heart. I just think ask. Ask for the heart that you know that you need, even though you don't have it right now. And the second is, and again, maybe it's just because God's grace and mercy is all over this. Go back and meditate on the grace and mercy of God. It's really hard. It's possible, but it's hard not to have your heart broken when you see how gracious God is and how sometimes you've sinned against him. Moving on to this, my personal takeaway part. You totally write your takeaway, but there's two things I would like for you to think about. Um, There's always, well, there's a lot of things that I think about when I study or teach the Bible. When I talk about talking to someone or talking to a group like this, there's always two things that I try to be conscious of. One, um, there's there's probably someone in the audience, uh, maybe not, but I assume, that we always heard something for the first time, right? Everybody had a first time when you heard stuff. And this may be the first time that you've heard some, heard some of these things. For those of you that are educators, you know, the whole scaffolding principle. Like I try to think, okay, how can we help? So here's what I want you to know. If this is your first time to hear about the grace and mercy of God and to realize his grace and mercy is that big, it's for you. You just believe. So I would just encourage your personal takeaway to be that. The second thing that I try to remember when I'm teaching is that whatever you're teaching about, talking about, whatever whatever it is, whatever struggle, whatever sin, my assumption is, based on statistics, and I just think it's a good assumption, that someone in the room is in that place right now. Because I think it impacts how you talk about it. And I don't know. I'm not Nathan. I'm not calling out anyone specifically. I know absolutely nothing. Except there's a good chance that someone is or has been having an affair. Um, That someone has deceived someone at great cost that's brought great hurt. That someone has hidden things from God. 
that there's some kind of it that you'd really rather not talk to God about. Um, and maybe there's no one in the room, but my guess is that there's someone. And if you want need to talk to me about it, or, or a staff member, or a Women in the Word leader, great. We, we would love to talk to you about that. But more than anything, I want you to know, His grace and mercy make the Grand Canyon look like an anthill. And whatever your but, but Kathy, if you only knew, but it's really bad, but nobody knows, please talk to God about it. He already knows. And he is a gracious, merciful God drawing you in, longing, longing for you to experience the healing and the grace and hope that you really want and are absolutely terrified that you cannot have. Please talk to him. So everyone right now, whether it's you or not, so that if you are that person, talk to God about my it. If you would all write that down, (laughs) then everybody knows it's there. And nobody's thinking that was just for me. Please know whatever you perceive to be small or big, the grace and mercy of God covers that. I want to conclude with a final story, and um, then we'll be done. Um, Right before I started studying this psalm, I was listening to a sermon, because I do that, and um, someone was telling a story, and I thought, that's just weird. Like, I believed them, but I didn't get it. Um, They were telling a story about how, I don't don't know if you're familiar, but in church history, there have been a lot of things done that have not been real good, and um, there was a time, the... 1500s, 1550s, where the Protestant Reformation was happening, where there are a lot of key things that some religious leaders were kind of persecuting or hurting people that were believing in things like um, the scriptures, that everyone should be able to read it in their own language, that um, it's Jesus alone for salvation. And there were a lot of people killed for believing that. And I was hearing a pastor tell a story about how Um, kind of around this time, around the 1550s, kind of tradition tells us in some stories that as people were literally walking up to be burned, they were for standing for their faith that they would quote Psalm 51. Now, don't get me wrong. Psalm 51 is a great psalm. We've just studied it. But I kind of thought, you're like standing up dying for your faith. And at Psalm 51, that just seemed weird to me. I'm like, I was thinking of a lot of other verses. Like, can't you quote like some of the victory passages in Revelation or go to some great theology in Romans about Jesus? I mean, this is what you've been standing out for. I just kind of thought, like I believed the story, but I thought, that's just a little weird to me. Like I just wouldn't, I wouldn't have imagined that. So this kind of played on and on in my head. And all of a sudden I realized one day, which I am not them, I don't know them. I, I, and, and I did go back and research their stories a little bit to make sure it wasn't this one pastor making something up. And I don't think it was. I, I mean, I trusted the pastor, but it was just so weird to me. I thought, i got to check this out. And I finally got it, what maybe they were thinking. You know you're standing at the end of your life. Within hours, your earthly life is going to end, and you're walking in the presence of God. And even though maybe you're ending on a high note of standing up for God, you know exactly what David does. There is no way, no way you're getting into heaven on your own. You know that within hours you are going to see a holy God in a way you have not before. And you don't deserve to be there by any stretch of the imagination. So like David, you know that at the core of you there's a sinner. You know there's no way, no way you have any hope in eternity without the grace and mercy of God. And I thought, 
Amen. Psalm 51 all the way. The only way there's any hope is this merciful God initiating with us through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through prayer, to draw you personally into confession conversations because he's so holy. But oh, is he so incredibly gracious and loving and merciful. Pray with me. Lord, right now, um, I just want to say thanks for your grace and your mercy and your love. It, it is so overwhelming to me. It does make the Grand Canyon look like an anthill to me. And, and I know I can barely grasp any of it. How gracious and freeing and loving are you? God, I know all of us in the room are sinners because the Bible tells me that. I don't know anyone in the room's specific sin over anything, but you do. And I'm assuming that you brought them here tonight so that you and she could have a conversation about it and that they could perhaps grasp your mercy and experience forgiveness, maybe for something they perceive to be small, maybe for something they believe to be big. But I just echo Deb's prayer and her heart behind this, that you would initiate with every woman in this room, that they would see and taste of your grace, that they would honestly admit the sin that is theirs, that you would give each one of us a a humble, broken heart in response to that, and yet the freedom of a then, of a life, of a hope that is after that, that doesn't have to stay stuck, but gets to get up and walk on and praise the grace of their merciful, gracious Father. Would you please do that for every woman in the room? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll be back next week for another awesome conversation um, with the Lord. So come join us.